Christ Church, New Malden, 1st of September 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series Romans and the Covenant, a Covenant Letter. Okay, so Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, one of the longest letters that Paul ever wrote. I think 1 Corinthians is just slightly longer. Certainly Paul's most complicated letter, but also, by common consent, his greatest letter as well. It's the letter that we're going to be grappling with over the next few months as we firstly try and understand it and secondly seek to put its teaching into practice. And it's found on page 1128. If you want to have the Bible open uh, during this talk, that will be useful. It's becoming a bit less common to write letters today, isn't it? We haven't just got phones available. They've been with us, obviously, for quite a while. But these days, we've got things like email, we've got things like texts, we've got things with weird names like WhatsApp, Skype, and FaceTime. But if something's really important, we still tend to put in a letter, don't we? A letter has a certain formality. A letter can't be interrupted. And carefully written, a letter can do a whole number of things at one and the same time. Some of the things that a letter might be seeking to do might be more obvious, and others might be a little bit more subtle. So use your imaginations for a moment. Imagine that you've got a brother and a sister who live out in Australia, and you plan to visit them in around seven or eight months' time. And so you write a letter. You're writing to let them know when you'll be coming. You're writing to let them know how much you're looking forward to it. But you also know that both of your siblings, your brother and your sister, they've been struggling a bit at work at the moment. They're feeling more than a bit oppressed and downtrodden by their work environment, perhaps by their bosses. You're concerned about this, but you're concerned even more by the fact that the relationship between your brother and your sister isn't really quite as good as you'd like it to be. And so as you write this letter to them, ostensibly about your forthcoming visit, there's actually a number of things that you're trying to respond to at the same time. Some things like the visit you can address pretty overtly. Other things like their difficulties at work or in their relationships, you need to address a little bit more subtly. Partly because you're not there and you don't want to come over as a know-all, but also because you don't want to be seen as partial or one-sided in your response. And so the way that you choose to address this is by writing a really positive and upbeat letter, including lots within it about family, what it means to you, what perhaps your parents modelled and sought to build within the family, in the hope that the really positive and upbeat nature of that letter speaks into all of the issues involved. Now that's not a perfect parallel, but it's a little bit similar to the situation and the issues that were involved as Paul wrote this famous letter to the Christians in Rome around 57 AD. Paul was writing around about 27 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul planned to visit Rome very shortly, partly with the aim, as chapter 15 tells us, of using it as his base for taking the Christian mission westwards. Paul planned to take the gospel to Spain. Whether he actually ever did that, we're not entirely sure. Probably not, but that certainly 
was his plan at the time that he wrote this letter. And so Paul wants the Roman Christians to know that he's planning to come and see them. But Paul also wanted to speak into at least two other issues that they were facing. Firstly, Paul wanted to speak into how difficult life was for them as a tiny group of Christians seeking to follow Jesus in a city that was dominated in every way by the might and the oppression and the propaganda of Caesar. That was one of the things that Paul needed to respond to. And secondly, Paul needed to respond to the tensions involved in their own relationships within the Roman church. You see, just a few years before, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, including the Jewish Christians. Now, by the time Paul was writing, the Jews had been allowed to return. There was a new emperor, Nero. But in their absence, the church had become dominated by Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. And a lot of those Gentile Christians, those non-Jewish Christians, they were pretty unsure of the value of their Jewish brothers and sisters with all their odd customs and laws. How did the way they behaved fit together with the way they understood their faith? And Paul wants to respond to this. And so, treading very carefully, because he doesn't want to be seen as one-sided, and treading carefully as well, because he didn't found the church in Rome, it was probably founded by Peter sometime earlier, what Paul does is to write this amazing and pretty sophisticated letter as his way of addressing all of these issues. So to take the easiest bit first, what we see Paul doing in verses 8 to 15 of this first chapter is talking about his impending visit to Rome. And Paul reports how constantly he prays for them, And he says that now his prayer has become extended to his plans to come to them. And not just so that they can be blessed by his presence. Paul does want to impart a spiritual gift to them. He wants to make them stronger. He wants to have also what he calls a harvest amongst them. Perhaps he plans through his preaching to bring more people into their church. And as I say, we know from later on, that he wanted to use Rome as his base for moving westward with the gospel. But he adds in verse 12 that he also wants them to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He wants this blessing to be mutual for both him and also for the Roman Christians. On Thursday, as many of you will know, we had the funeral here at Christchurch of our dear brother, Mark Elston. And one of the things that I talked about from this pulpit on Thursday was Mark's commitment to encouraging Christians in Macedonia. Mark had a very strong calling to do that. And he went about it by communication, email with them, but also by visiting them. But the reason why that was such an effective ministry was partly because of its mutuality. Those Macedonian Christians were blessed by Mark's commitment and care for them, and he was blessed by doing that and by witnessing their perseverance and their courage. And that's what always happens when we're involved in any ministry. 
It's never a question of simply the blessings flowing one way. They always flow back to those involved in ministry as well. It doesn't mean that it's not tough and not hard work and sometimes rather discouraging. But whenever we're involved in any ministry that God calls us to, the blessings flow both ways. Just talk to those who are involved in children's work here at Christchurch, people like the Moors, who, before they pick up their instruments and come here and play at the 11 o'clock service, uh, don those rather garish orange hoodies and work with climbers. And some of you work with scramblers and others with climbers and so on. But of course, not just children's work. Grapevine meets this Sunday at our lunch club, where we try and welcome as many people as possible uh, to come and enjoy food and friendship. Open the book, the team that goes in and takes assemblies uh, in the Christchurch schools. The night shelter, which takes place in the winter. Other groups like Women's Own and so on. There's always a mutual blessing when Christians set out to support one another. And that's where home groups also can be such a blessing. You see, we aren't in relationship with God as individuals. Our faith is personal, but it's not individual. Because personal doesn't exclude the corporate, but individual does. And in an individualistic age that we live within, the truth of this and all the blessings that mutual uh, Christian support contains is something we really need to ponder and probably act on a little bit more. So where are we giving ourselves the opportunity to be part of such a mutual blessing in our lives at the moment? If we're not part of a home group, would that be a good way of responding to this challenge? If we are in a home group or some equivalent, do we still need to develop our Christian relationships a little bit more so that we can become more of a mutual blessing to one another? Do we perhaps need to be willing to make ourselves a little bit more open and vulnerable? That's often the key to developing really strong mutual relationships with other Christians, just having that willingness to make ourselves a little bit more vulnerable. The corporate nature of our Christian faith will be further relevant in a few moments, when we look at how Paul starts to address the Romans' relational issues. But before we look at how he speaks into that, we need to see how he speaks into the cultural situation, the difficulty and the oppression that they found themselves within. You see, as I said earlier, this tiny group of Christians, it was probably only around about 100 or so of them, were living in an enormous city with around about a million inhabitants, and they were living at the very centre, obviously, of the Roman Empire. They were living, and it would have been reflected in almost everything they witnessed, the architecture, uh, the military power. They would have been witnessing all around them the power and the seeming majesty of Rome. The Caesar, who by this stage was Nero, was hailed as the Son of God. That was the title that was used of him. He was celebrated as Lord of the world. He was described as the one who'd brought peace and unity to that world. His accession and his victories were described by the term good news. And he was the one to whom everyone was therefore summoned by his heralds to both be acknowledged and be given 
complete obedience. Except that it was all a complete sham. This mighty Roman Empire was built more than anything which has ever existed in this world on spin and on show. When you strip away the glitz and you strip away all the propaganda, the Roman Empire was completely decadent and oppressive. It was characterized by greed and idolatry and it was built upon slavery. And so what Paul does right from the start of this letter, and it's incredibly daring, is to expose this by taking the very titles and the phrases that were used in connection with Caesar, he takes them from Caesar, and he gives them to Jesus instead. The real good news, the real gospel, wasn't anything to do with Caesar. It was, Paul says, about God himself acting within the world to bring about its genuine rescue, its genuine salvation. And the one revealed as the real son of God wasn't Caesar, it was Jesus the Messiah. Rome thought, with all its control over life and death, that it possessed ultimate power, but actually it was through his resurrection from death. And after death on a cross, the greatest symbol of Roman power that Jesus, and not Caesar, had been revealed to be Lord of the world. And finally, it was apostles like Paul, servants of Christ Jesus, who were the real heralds of the true king, announcing the genuine good news and calling people everywhere to both acknowledge him and show the obedience of faith. When we read those first seven verses of Paul's letter to the Romans, those first six or seven verses, in the light of the context and in the light of what we know about the way that Caesar and Rome projected itself, they take on a new light because our eyes are suddenly opened to how counter-imperial the start of this letter is. Paul very deliberately takes the very titles and very slogans and very phrases that were used to show that Caesar was Lord and instead gives them all to Jesus. That's what the first six verses of this remarkable letter are proclaiming. That everything that Rome claimed for itself was a sham because the real thing, the genuine article, was found in Jesus Christ. God had become Lord of the world in his son Jesus Christ and everyone was now summoned to believe in him and receive this salvation. That was the message. That was the good news that Paul made it his life's work to proclaim to everyone who would hear it. And that was the message that he was proclaiming to this tiny group of Christians living in Rome. And the truth is that both we and those that we live amongst need to hear something similar. Because the truth is that we're living in a culture which through all of its advertising and its propaganda actually makes very similar claims to those of Rome. The claim is that fulfilment and purpose and joy can be found by buying into life being all about prestige and possessions, wealth and power, really pretty much regardless of who pays the price for this. That's the fake good news 
that we're seeing and hearing pretty much every time we switch on our televisions with their advertising, with their worship of celebrity, and so on. And so just as at the start of this letter, Paul proclaims that Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar isn't, so we also need not only to acknowledge Jesus as Lord here on a Sunday, as we do, but consciously during the week, we need to dethrone those other things, indeed those other people, who claim that title. That's all part of how we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That's all part of how we demonstrate what Paul calls the obedience of faith. What Paul is doing here is acting like a herald. As the apostle, he proclaims that Jesus is Lord and summons the world to obedience to that Lord. So that's the second really important thing that Paul is doing as he starts this famous letter. But a third thing, and one that relates to both this and his response to those divisions within the Roman church that I was talking about earlier, is where Paul says in verse 17 that in the gospel or in the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness, he says, that is by faith from first to last. So what's this all about? Why is this term righteousness so important? Well, righteousness is a really key word in the Old Testament. We had a really good example of it in that passage that Susie, Susie read to us earlier from Psalm 71, where five times the psalmist refers to God's righteousness. And when the term righteousness is used of God in the Old Testament, what it refers to is God's commitment to bringing his saving justice to the world. God's commitment to his covenant promises. Those promises that he made successively through the Old Testament to Noah, to Abraham, then to Moses, and then to David, and finally through the prophets, that he wouldn't leave the world in the mess that it was, but that he would act to rescue and transform it. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. That's what Psalm 71 says. And later on it says, my mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long. Whatever awful things happen in the Old Testament, its writers constantly cling to the belief of God's righteousness that God's covenant justice will one day come to the earth and put everything right. And that righteousness, Paul says, near the start of Romans, has finally come. It's finally been revealed in Jesus Christ. The gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is that the full and final revelation of God's righteousness has occurred. All those promises that God made through the prophets and which Paul uh, briefly touches on in verse 2, they've been fulfilled in the coming of this descendant of David who has now been declared by his resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God. That very long story of the covenant which is told through the pages of the Old Testament and winds one way and then the next and seems to be forever looking for a resolution, 
What Paul is saying is that story has reached its climax in the coming of Jesus Christ. And what the rest of this great letter to the Romans will basically do is to retell the story of that covenant and how it met its strange and unexpected fulfilment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And specifically, what Romans will do is tell the story of how God fulfilled his righteousness even after Israel, his chosen people, turned out to be thoroughly unrighteous. You see, Israel were chosen to be God's solution to a sinful world, but they turned out to be just as much part of the problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul later says in chapter 3. And so in Romans, we see Paul telling the story of how God has still fulfilled the covenant through the coming of Jesus Christ. And what's more, fulfilled it in a way that enables not only Jews, but Gentiles as well, to join his one single family. That's what he's declaring in verse 16, when he calls the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. It's the oneness of this family that God has created in Jesus Christ that then becomes the basis for the very practical appeal that Paul makes in the later parts of Romans, for this family to live together in a way that demonstrates that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are one. They're one united people in Jesus Christ. And that itself was a challenge to Rome and all the fake unity that in reality was built on oppression and divide and rule. Rome prided itself on Pax Romana, that Rome could include everyone, but it was fake. It was spin. It didn't measure up, certainly to the real deal, which Paul was presenting in Jesus Christ. What Paul is constantly showing in Romans is how the real deal, the genuine article, is found in the single family created by God in Jesus Christ, which is for everyone without exception. is open to everyone to join and where they can then be challenged to live out its reality. And you've heard me speak about it many times before, but one of our foremost aims as a church is seeking to reflect that here, seeking to be one united community in Jesus Christ. That's why as soon as you enter the building, you come through those automatic doors, you see a logo right in front of you with several colours. Those colours are meant to represent the different parts of Christ Church being brought into one single unity. If you worry, uh, wonder about the colours, red represents the 9.30 congregation, yellow represents the 11 o'clock congregation. They're basically based on the backgrounds when we use the screen. Blue represents 6.30. Green represents Grapevine and our various uh, social projects. Purple represents our various youth groups. But how are we going to respond? How are we going to seek to live out this truth that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is bringing people, disparate people, disunited people, unconnected people, into one single united family 
in his Son, Jesus Christ. Characterized simply by faith in him. Not defined by anything that would ever exclude people, as the Jewish law did, that excluded the Gentiles. This new family is characterized simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's inclusive of anyone and everyone. But how are we going to reflect that? How are our relationships, both with those within this 11 o'clock congregation and those outside it, how are they going to reflect that aim, that vision, that aspiration? What things could we be doing differently to show that we really believe in that good news, that we really believe in that gospel? That we want to hold out to people the genuine article in a world full of destructive and unhelpful messages and all sorts of things that are held out to people which are frankly idolatry, saying if you give yourself to this, you will only find everything that life has to give. It's always a sham. It's always fake. And actually, it's always built on oppression. Usually someone is paying the price somewhere along the line for whatever we're being offered that will give us life and fulfillment. Normally someone is in some place uh, being oppressed and exploited in order to provide that. It's a sham. What we're being called to, as Paul summons us to accept the gospel and to live by it, is the genuine article, the genuine community, that it can include everyone without exploitation. The way of living a healthy life by placing the good things that God has given us below him so that they can be the blessing they're intended to be rather than the curse. That's our calling as Christians. So Paul's letter to the Romans, all 16 chapters of it, we're going to be studying here at the 11 o'clock service over the next few months. Hopefully it can really get hold of us. Romans has a history of doing this. There are all sorts of people through Christian history who've studied Romans and it's transformed them. They've been left different from the way they were when they first encountered it. It's a letter all about the good news, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how God amazingly and in a way that no one had possibly imagined brought his great covenant to fulfillment. But it's practical theology. It's not abstract. It's sometimes been treated in that way, but it's not. Romans is summoning us to its vision of the obedience of faith. It's summoning us to live out our lives and particularly our relationships in a way that demonstrates our belief that Jesus Christ and no one and nothing else is Lord of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your servant Paul and the clarity with which he saw what it means to proclaim and live under your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord of this world. And as we think about that tiny group of Christians in Rome, surrounded by so much that proclaimed a very different message, we pray, Lord God, that as Christians in New Morden in 2019, 
you would open our eyes to the messages all around us that you want to be challenged by the good news that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. We pray for our relationships. We pray for every part of our life here as a church. And we ask, Lord God, that it will be shaped by the genuine good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, shown and proclaimed by his resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God and the one through whom salvation and rescue and fullness of life is found. We pray that you'd shape us and inspire us to live out our response to this good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>